everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Please note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please consult your healthcare practitioner for any decisions regarding your health. And I think that's really apropos today, but it's, I think it'll be a really interesting discussion. We are now approaching year three of COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it's pretty safe to say we are all quite weary from the precautions we have to take, you know, from masks to social distancing, hand washing all the time. And on the other hand, I can confidently say also that the majority of the public is suffering from a form of vaccine fatigue. The question I get almost every day in my practice is, do I really need another COVID booster vaccine? And many of my patients are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and they've been vaccinated, at least two doses, sometimes with a booster. A lot of them already have had COVID infections at least once. So it's really a legitimate question, and I think an important question. Personally, I'm very pro-vaccine. I believe vaccinations have been one of the medicine's most amazing triumphs over disease. But I too worry when, when is something too much? Well, fortunately today, I have just the right person to give us his view on this important topic. It's Dr. Paul Offit. He's a professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Offit has been on my podcast uh, three prior times. He is my go-to doctor regarding anything on vaccines. And I'm not alone. All the major media outlets, from TV to uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, he's on their Rolodex to reach out when they want to get, um, you know, his opinion. So um, please welcome, and I'm honored to have him back again, Dr. Paul Offit, to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Dean. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit. I'd like to about the process of creating effective and safe vaccinations. Now, I'm sure many of my listeners are not avid obituary readers like myself. <laughs> I, I find them very interesting biographies. Uh, and Dr. Samuel Katz actually passed away this past week at 95. And I, I see Dr. Often nodding because he, he, I'm sure he knows of Dr. Katz or knew him personally. <laughs> he was part of the research team at Harvard that developed the measles vaccine. And yes, there was a time in the, in the late 1950s, early 1960s when measles was more dreaded than probably any other infectious disease. It was killing, uh, I think, approximately five to 600 children a year. Dr. Katz, now, it's, in, it's interesting. He initially worked in the lab of Dr. John Enders at Harvard, and Enders won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for discovering how to culture the polio virus. And this was really super important because this is what led the way for Dr. Jonas Salk, who became super worldwide famous, for creating the first polio vaccine. So going back to Dr. Katz, what he and his colleagues did, they adapted the measles virus to different cell types from eggs to chick embryos. You know, a process, and this is how vaccines were created in the past, by weakening the virus so it could stimulate an immune response, but without causing serious side effects. So what I wanna ask Dr. Offit is that in your book, Vaccinated, you also point out how Maurice Hilleman you know, really the champion of your book, who uh, actually helped in the, the wide distribution of the measles vaccine, would pass the virus like 40 times through chick embryos to get to that safe 
vaccine level. So my question to you is this older technique of finding a host to grow the virus, then weakening it, it was really the classic way. And now we have this new method, this messenger RNA, which is really completely different, where you know there's no cell cultures. Um, is that a problem? Is that, you know, I mean, you know, you know, so much of the public was worried, God, these vaccines came out so fast. And even though they were in the makes for like 10 years, but well, I'm just curious if you are, because you have such a great historical perspective on, you know, the making of vaccines. Do you see, you know, issues here? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that we have never historically had a messenger RNA vaccine. Right. Um, and although it, it's true that, that people started working on messenger RNA as a possible vaccine, and what messenger RNA is, it's just that small piece of genetic material that is enters your cell and then is quickly transcribed to a protein. Um, and so but it's, it's uh, unlike typical vaccines, for example, if you're given a whole killed viral vaccine like the polio right. vaccine or a live right. weakened viral vaccine, you're actually right. given the, 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 the proteins. Um, right. Here, right. you know, your body makes that protein. Right. So that's novel. And I think when I was on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, when we considered these vaccines back in December of 2020, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine or the uh, the Moderna mRNA vaccine, you knew that there was no historical precedent. And so you you were worried and you did look mm -hmm. very carefully at this, knowing that these studies that were done in 40,000 people for Pfizer or 30,000 for Moderna weren't 40 million or 30 or 30 million. And you knew that, that eventually you were going to find out something you wish you'd known earlier. Um, but, you know, but the, the data that were presented, I think, were compelling that these vaccines were were clearly effective and um, at least as far as you knew, safe, meaning that the benefits outweighed risks, real or theoretical. But it, it's always, you know, your, your, your heart is always in your throat when you approve right. a vaccine using a novel technology. But I think, you know, now you have you know, billions of people that have been immunized with this vaccine. So I think we, the, the, the record at this point is clear. Well, this is what I'm, I'm thinking, though. Um... Uh, by the way, was it tested in animals or it just went straight to humans? You know, when oh, they always tested now. You, you always even, 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 no, even the messenger RNA ones. They were tested like yes. in you know monkeys and stuff like that. It had to have been. That's yeah. Right. Okay. I, was, I mean, because it, it came out so quickly. You know, uh, I was just wondering. You know, because what always struck me and really struck me in your book, Vaccinated, um, and you know that you know some of the earlier earliest people, whether it was Louis Pasteur or, you know, some of the earliest, quote, vaccinologists who really, they weren't called that then because <laughs> that name didn't exist. You know, they took very crude methods, but scientific in trying to, you know, to weaken the virus and got, in a lot of cases, tremendous success. And the other thing that really strikes me is that, you know, so many of the vaccines, even though with all the anti-vaxxers and, you know, a lot of crazy people out there, you know, the, the vaccinations that the children get today, they not only are effective and basically really safe, but they last, it seems like a lifetime. And these vaccines, again, I don't know if it's from the virus, the coronavirus, or if it seems last maybe months. What is that all about? Like, what you know, why are those older vaccines, is it because of the age that the you know, that the person gets the vaccination or no? 
It depends on the virus. So, okay. so if we use the virus as an example, yeah. when you have a virus that has a long incubation period, meaning the time from when you're exposed to the time that you develop symptoms, right. you can actually make vaccines that would last a lifetime. And the reason for that is that if you're trying to protect against mild illness, you really need neutralizing antibodies that are present at the time that you're exposed. Um, but if it's, it's for a short incubation period disease, like coronavirus, like SARS-CoV-2 is a short incubation period disease. The Omicron variant has an incubation period of like 3.2 days. So that's short, which means you need neutralized. If you're going to protect against mild disease, you need neutralizing antibodies at the time of exposure. Okay. If you take a long incubation period disease like measles, which has an incubation period of, say, a couple of weeks. Now, from the time when you're exposed to when you develop symptoms is a couple of weeks. So you don't really need neutralizing antibodies. You just need uh. memory cells memory B cells, oh, really memory T cells, and because there, that's plenty of time then to activate those cells to then make those antibodies so that you can even be protected against mild disease. So you can eliminate those kinds of diseases from the face of the earth. Um, polio is, is uh, although the intestinal disease has a short incubation period, the time from exposure to paralysis is long. Smallpox has a long incubation period. Rubella has a long incubation period. So you can eliminate those diseases. You'll never eliminate diseases with short incubation periods. Influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, the coronaviruses. And I think where people got, got confused mm, with this yes. vaccine, and I blame us. I, I think we just didn't do a very good job of explaining this. Well, so for example, when we looked at data back in December of 2020, Pfizer Moderna data, you had 95% efficacy, not only against serious disease, but mild disease. Why? Why was it so high against mild disease? And the reason is those studies were done over a period of three months. Those participants had just gotten their second dose. Right. So what happened six months later is just what you would have expected to have happened. You still had high protection against serious disease because that's mediated by memory cells. But what you didn't have as well was protection against mild disease. And thus was born the term breakthrough illness, which is the, the most, I think, the biggest communications error. Oh, God, right. It's right. Yeah. Was the use of that term because breakthrough implies failure and that's right, not a didn't work right uh, the moment came and cdc created this term so i'm sort of blaming them mm. when there was this the outbreak in provincetown massachusetts i don't even know if you remember this but thousands of men get together celebrate the july 4th holiday in provincetown massachusetts um most were vaccinated like 80 percent vaccination rate but nonetheless 346 vaccinated people got covid four were hospitalized that's a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's great. That's yeah. a win. The right. re remainder had mild or asymptomatic infection. And th thus was born the term breakthrough and waning immunity. And we set a, a, um, a bar for this vaccine that could never be reached, which is long-term protection against mild illness. That could never happen. And I think we made a mistake by miscommunicating that. Well, that, I think that's a really important point that yeah, I didn't know. And... Uh... You know, I, again, I find fascinating because it's just so perplexing when you're trying to figure out like why some of these older vaccines, I mean, you just really explained it, seemed protective for a lifetime. And um, this, like the flu, you know, we're battling every few months uh, to stay protected and, you know, to see if, you know, it's worthwhile getting the vaccination. Um, so you're saying also too, I was just thinking about this the other day. So like when I was in medical residency, I, I got, they just come out with the hepatitis B vaccinations. You know, they wanted all the residents who could be exposed to that, you know, to get it. And I actually got, before they had the recombinant DNA, I guess I got the serum one. And, uh, and they said to us at the time, like, you know, you may have to get this every 10 years, which I wasn't too thrilled about. Uh, but, you know, the kids now get, get it when they're infants. And so is that a lifetime protection? You know, it is. 
because it's a long incubation period disease. Mm. And so those, those antibodies don't, even the memory probably don't wane. They, they, no, they stay, do wane. They, they do, do wane. wane. That's okay. Because That's all, all right. you need is memory B cells and memory T cells, which are generally resident cells that are long lived. Mm-hmm. And as long as you have those memory cells, uh, you'll be protected for the rest of your life. And when we, we first started giving hepatitis B vaccine, which was actually originally in the 80s with the, with the one you got, the serum derived vaccine. And yeah. by the 90s, early 90s, we had this so-called you know recombinant DNA vaccines. But five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, now 30 years later, you still have excellent protection because it's a long incubation period disease. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one other thing too for a second before we get to the COVID boosters because I know people really want to know about that. I want to talk about natural immunity. And you know, sometimes stories really stick out in your head. And I think, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but there was this woman who was like 105 years old who uh, had died and... Uh, I think she had gotten COVID and she survived. <laughs> this woman had amazing immunity. And, but one of the things that was really fascinating about her, that she was an infant and somehow, I guess they had documented that she had gotten, uh, I guess in 1918 or something, the Spanish the influence, the flu. Huh. And she survived, you know, where a lot of maybe one of her siblings didn't. And then like, I think later on when she, when there was like other flu epidemics, she again survived. She was fine. I mean, you know, compared to most people. So what is it about, natural immunity. I guess what I'm trying to even understand with COVID, you know, what is it, you know, what can you, we hope for having, you know, um, been exposed or even sick with, uh, you know, a virus before? Um, how much protection do we really get? Or does it vary so much between the viruses? Well, if you look at SARS-CoV-2, natural immunity certainly is protective. I mean, studies that have been done looking at people who are naturally infected versus vaccinated, um, there are some studies that show you're actually even better off with, uh, with assuming you live, that you're better off having natural immunity um, because, remember, you're making an immune response to all four viral proteins, not just right. that one spike right. protein. There is an advantage to that. You're also making um, so-called cytotoxic T-cell responses, which, which are against, uh, against several of the proteins, not just that one protein. So there are advantages to natural infection. Um, probably the best scenario, I mean, this is, it was a study by Chan that was reported in Science uh, Immunology, is you, you're, you probably have your best immunity, meaning your broadest, long, longest lasting immunity with three doses of an mRNA vaccine where that third dose is at least four to six months later, or two doses of an mRNA vaccine and, and a natural infection. Those are basically equivalent in terms of long-term, what appears to be long-term protection, assuming that you are less than 75 and relatively healthy. You know, I could give the audience, I have to give them a great example of this. Um, I had gotten, uh, when it was available, you know, the two uh, initial vaccinations. And very careful, masking, trying to do social distance as much as I could um, for about a year, you know, probably, you know, around that time. And I was, you know, fine, thank God, you know, and take a lot of precautions in my office with all these special air purifiers. Then in January of last year, my son, uh, celebrating, uh, you know, on New Year's Eve or whatever, he got it with a whole bunch of his friends, COVID. He had been vaccinated, but he got it. And he came down to visit me. I was down in Florida with my wife in a small apartment. And sure enough, within a couple of days, you know, because he didn't know initially that he had it. I got it, you know, and my wife. Uh, fortunately, it was kind of like just the bad cold. I, um, you know, I had some fever for the day or two and, you know, a little aches, but, you know, it went away in a week. But this is the interesting part of the story. So then a few months later, around April, and it was a Jewish holiday, Passover, and we had all my family sing around at a table. It was about 15 of us. 
you know, at the, at the Seder, as they call it. And, um, the next day after the, um, after the, you know, the holiday, my sister calls me up and says, oh no, I have bad sore throat. I just went, I got tested. I have COVID. So oh boy. Okay. Now she had been vaccinated and boosted. The next day, uh, my mom calls, who's in her eighties. <laughs> she goes, my throat's killing me. She goes, I don't feel good. She gets tested. She was positive for COVID, got sick. Uh, she was boosted twice. Uh, everybody around the table, except me and my wife, I had nothing, you know, which was amazing. Cause I usually, if I get exposed, I get sick, <laughs> you know? So I, to me, and then later on, I, for another reason, I was, did a blood test. I had very high neutralizing antibody. So it was just very, in, made a huge impression on me, you know, and it, we've spoken to before about the combination. I mean, I'm sure if I wasn't vaccinated, I would have gotten really, really sick. But the fact that I got, had the vaccinations, but was, you know, got the national immunity, and, you know, from the infection, now I was pretty good, right? So it's kind of it confirms what you're saying. So I guess we have to get to the big question here, because as I mentioned in the opening, you know, the the, the public is, you know, having vaccine, vaccine fatigue. They're kind of indifferent to it. They go, oh, another booster. How often need, do I need to get these? You know, the CDC now is even recommending that everybody over age five get this booster. So... I'm going to ask your opinion about this. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, but but I also want to ask you in the sense too, Dr. Offit, I do know of, because I get I get the calls as an allergist, immunologist, I've seen the people with the vaccine reactions. I mean, it's been, it's a potent vaccine. Um, I've seen people get transient ischemic attacks, TIAs. Um, yeah, I've had two people with that. I've seen people get what's called mast cell activation, where this is a very bizarre, but after the vaccinations, some of these people who had never had an allergy before all of a sudden have several different kinds of food allergies and they can't eat a lot of different foods. So I don't know how much this gets reported, but I can tell you that I've been seeing it in my practice a little bit. Um, so again, that's why we're trying to weigh in and say, who really needs these boosters? So love to hear what you think. So, so when the vaccine came out in, in December 2020, um, you had data one year later, so December 2020, when they were, were generated by the CDC, they tried to answer the question, was protection lasting? And, and by protection, I mean protection against serious illness. Right, the right. That's what we're talking about. Right. Goal, mm -hmm. The only attainable goal is protection against serious illness. Right. So one year later, after a two-dose vaccine... What, uh, what the study showed, and this was published by Mark Tenford in Clinical Infectious Diseases, was that the vaccine protection was holding up. Okay. Uh, it was true for people over 65. It was true for people who had multiple comorbidities. It was true for Pfizer's vaccine and Moderna's vaccine. We still had excellent protection after two doses. Now, that's through December 2021, which means that's Alpha and Delta, right? So your, your Omicron is just starting to hit the United States in December 2021. So then Omicron hits. And, and Omicron was a, uh, a surprise. I, I don't think people imagined that a coronavirus would drift as far as, as Omicron drifted, meaning that it had, had a number of mutations, uh, critical mutations in the spike protein uh, that made it pretty much resistant to protection against mild illness induced by vaccination. 
And what they found was that a third dose was, a, so then they tried to answer the question, was there a value in getting another dose? And what they found was that a third dose was a value in terms of protecting against hospitalization, because that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And then later, that, that then to a lesser extent, that a fourth dose was a value. But the question is, who was it a value in? And, right. and the answer was not everybody. The answer was okay. primarily people who were over 75 or in the UK study, people over 80, uh, people who were immune compromised and people who had who were frail, meaning had the kind of medical problems where even a mild illness could cause them to be hospitalized. Those right. three groups. So I think it was reasonable at that point, meaning now we're in 2022, to recommend an additional dose for people who were in those three groups. Great. I also think personally, just from the data that have been published, that even if you're a healthy young person, you do benefit from a third dose in the Omicron era, because with that third dose, and these are studies done by Linda Safe in the New England Journal of Medicine, that third dose does increase your, your neutralizing antibody response and therefore memory response against these Omicron subvariants. So I do think there's an advantage to a third dose four to six months later in people who say we're never naturally infected. And, and, and that's it. I mean, I think the, 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 the recommendation that everybody over five years of age should get a bivalent vaccine, I think is not correct. Um, first of all, I think the bivalent vaccine uh, was, how can I say this uh, <laughs> in any sense correctly, was oversold. I, I, you know, the hope. So let me take a step back. Okay. The hope was that that we that by including the BA4, BA5, so an Omicron subvariant in that vaccine would lead to better protection against the circulating strain. So certainly the idea was a good one, but it just didn't pan out. I mean, you have now studies that were done by David Ho's lab out of Columbia, by uh, Dan Baruch's lab out of Harvard, now a more recent study with the Novavax vaccine shows that, that there is no difference in terms of getting a neutralizing antibody response to BA4, BA5, whether you get the bivalent vaccine or you just got the monovalent vaccine. But nonetheless, the bivalent vaccine is all we have now as a booster dose. I don't think it's going to be any worse. Uh, I don't think it's going to be any less safe. But I think my recommendation would be be to to that that heading into the winter that it's probably reasonable for people who fall into those three groups to get a booster dose but not everybody and also realize that despite the fact that some public health officials are getting on national television and saying this will give you better protection against against the circulating strains than was given by the monovalent vaccine is not supported by the data. And it, it is upsetting to me when we talk about how we need to follow the science, that, that those kinds of statements don't follow the science. Yeah, that's why I love having you on, because you're such a straight shooter. You have no agenda except to protect, you know, the children, the population and, uh, you know, you have skin in the game, but you don't have any biases. And uh, so I just want to clarify this. So again, if you had a grandchild that was like six years old, you would recommend obviously that he or she got vaccinated, but not necessarily boosted. And with the original vaccine, not that, well, because we're calling right, it boosters, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, would they, would they get the vaccination with the new, well, they call them quote the boosters, but would it be, would it be with the original vaccine, the monovalent vaccine? That's what you would recommend. Yeah, the, the bivalent vaccines are available only as a booster. Only as a booster. Not okay, as a interesting. Okay, okay, to know that. Okay, at least for now. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. And so, again, uh, so, so, more, yeah. Yeah, so, so I actually will have a grandchild actually in March. So, uh, so uh, congratulations. What I recommend to my son and his his wife is that their their child does get vaccinated, obviously, but, but right. not boost until we have more information. Okay, I like that. That's I think again super helpful. All right, let's take some other populations. You know, we have a lot of listeners. You know, I as I said, patients in my practice are in their twenties, and they've um, they've had two of the you know, the um, 
the two vaccinations, you know, the initials. And some of them, as I said, have been infected with COVID. Almost everybody has. <laughs> Nobody's like, gotten away from this thing. Do they need a booster? No, I think if you've had two doses of vaccine and you've been naturally infected, I do not think you need a booster. No, and that, that's mm-hmm. based on data, mm-hmm. I think wonderful data published by Chen and coworkers out of Harvard in science immunology, I think really nailed that question down. Oh, so super. It's what you'd expect. I mean, natural infection yeah. also induces an immune response because the virus is reproducing itself. You're making antibody and cellular right. responses to, to all four proteins. There's an advantage to natural infection. The big disadvantage is not everybody lives through natural infection. So you Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, you know, when I was telling people initially about, oh, you know, some people, I don't know about this vaccine, this and that too. I said, I said, if polio was going around, would you get the polio vaccine? <laughs> you know, and this is the same thing. This was a dangerous new virus that our body had never seen Nobody had any immunity to it. And honestly, you know, for once also too, it was like step up to the plate. This was for society. This wasn't even just for yourself, you know? So unless you had some really, um, I had people calling me to get exemptions and I wouldn't do it. I said, I mean, unless you have an unusually severe reaction to vaccines or, or something that really preempted you getting the vaccination, we were doing this for everybody, not just for ourselves. And it's worked. I mean, that's just really the bottom line. I mean, it's really, you know, as much as, you know, it's still around, I guess, like the flu's around. I mean, people can go about their normal daily life. I mean, look what's going on in China. They're, they're still struggling because they were so busy with these lockdowns. People don't have any herd immunity. I mean, it's, you know, it was, again, it was essentially what we wanted, right? To have people have some degree of immunity to make life go on as before. Um. You know, I just want to, and I want to emphasize this again too, because this was a study I did, I pulled out, just came out of JAMA, that in a nursing home population, so people have to understand this, this is a nursing home population. These are people in a facility who obviously are elderly. Um, the ones who had gotten the uh, COVID booster vaccine, it protected them 60% uh, from being hospitalized. So that's a big deal, because you're, you're in a nursing home, unfortunately, you're also a couple steps away from being hospitalized for various reasons. It protected... 90% of them from death. So as you were just saying earlier, and I, again, I, just, I want our listeners to know this, maybe for their, you know, their elderly relatives, if they're in a nursing home or, you know, concerned that the booster does make sense for them, you know, because they you never know. know my mother's getting. 92. I recommended that she got a booster as we had, she headed into the winter. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Do you think down the line too, there's going to be any way to ameliorate any potential side effects from these mRNA vaccines? Because, you know, again, with, again, going back to what I talked about in the beginning, you know, again, the old method, you know, sometimes the old methods are not bad, really, <laughs> you know, with culturing and making sure, because I remember, I think it was even Hilleman was so concerned that the way the vaccines were weakened, you know, for safety reasons. And as you met, you point out in your book, Vaccinated, and I think in the You Bet Your Life, another great read for our listeners, that, you know, when mistakes were made, I mean, I think it was that Cutter Labs, they didn't, the, the strain was not properly weakened and it resulted in disease and death. So is there anything with these mRNA vaccines that you're aware of that can be, to make them safer? I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of people, it's very potent, you know, it seems even, you know, they, they get, you know, usually by the second shot, they're feeling it. I mean, that's kind of the, the word on the street. <laughs> Definitely. I, I think... 
And just personally, the um, I, I have never seen this much lymphadenopathy, meaning swelling of the lymph node under your arm, since mm. the smallpox vaccine. I mean, smallpox wow. vaccine did that. Another potent vaccine. This vaccine does that. I mean, I think we're, we're learning as we go, as was always true in medicine um, with this vaccine, clearly can cause myocarditis. It clearly can cause pericarditis. Uh, the, the other things that you mentioned, things like transient ischemic attacks or mast cell activation, I think... Um, those things are reported through the vaccine adverse events reporting system, and hopefully through through which is as a hypothesis generating uh, system, if you will. But the hypothesis testing system, meaning is this occurring more commonly in a vaccinated than unvaccinated population? I think it, through places like the vaccine safety data link or vSafe, I think that's how we'll be able to figure that out whether that is true, and and more importantly to understand the mechanism by which it's true. And if there is, and once you can figure out the mechanism by which it's true, then you have a chance to try and figure out how to make it safer. Yeah, I mean, because what would be really amazing, as I said, because I see a lot of these patients with what's called mast cell activation. It was a condition that honestly was just under our nose in the algae field for decades because everybody was so focused on IgE, you know, and all these other things. Not realizing, you know, because what happens is their cells like, oh, those cells aren't important. They're just, you know, they're just uh, for people who have some allergies. You know, we don't even know why we have this. And of course, the body, it's a major immune defense cell. (laughs) And I think it gets activated. So it'll be interesting down the line if patients that either are aware they have this condition or if they've had some kind of reaction to drugs or vaccines before, maybe again, pre-medicating with antihistamines or doing something just to calm down their immune system a little bit so that they could get the vaccination safely without obviously an adverse dangerous reaction. Yeah, the, the, the one thing I, 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 I guess warned about is that um, when you take an antipyretic, for example, or an anti-inflammatory yes. before getting a vaccine, realize that you are to some extent suppressing your immune response. I mean, fever mm-hmm. is induced by the kinds of immune cells like uh, cytokines and chemokines. Great point. Um, that, that for the purpose of uh, uh, enhancing your immune response. I mean, you make a better immune response at a higher temperature right. across the board. Right. That's why you have fever. I mean, it's not just right. to keep the pharmaceutical companies in business. You have fever because your immune response works better at a yes. higher temperature. So when you blunt that, you do blunt your your response to the vaccine. So I would just warn against giving antipyretics. That, that's a great point. I'm not sure about antihistamines. That might be okay. No, no, that's different. Been... Yeah, no, I think yeah. that's the that you said that actually. Yeah. You know, it's funny too, because, you know, sometimes I, I must've been watching, you know, one of the television stations and when they were doing the initial vaccinations, they had a couple on, I think he was a doctor who had gotten vaccinated and, you know, saying how everything was going fine. And it was interesting because <laughs> the husband who was a doctor, got the vaccination. He got kind of sick after the second shot. You know, he just felt really terrible and whenever couldn't get out of bed. And the wife was sitting there saying, yeah, I felt kind of bad too, but I waited about six, seven hours and I took a a Tylenol, and she goes, I was, boom, I was fine. <laughs> and I remember, and again, I, you know, obviously I know immunology, so I knew in my own mind too, and I tell patients, like you just mentioned, don't don't take a Tylenol right away, you know, whatever, you want your immune system, you have to feel it. But I, would, I must have been about eight, nine hours into my, when I got the second shot, and I was like, given in. <laughs> so I took the Tylenol, and I tell you, it was amazing, within one hour, I was like, I felt great and it was like past my immune problem. So maybe if you can hold out a little bit longer, uh, it's worthwhile. Okay, the last area I wanna ask you, cause you really, you, you, you nailed it for me today. I mean, as I said, and I, I hope my listeners are really as fortunate as I am to have you as a resource to really help steer all these questions that they get. But for me also just selfishly and curiously, I'm just so perplexed about why there aren't more um, 
vaccines for other kind of viruses. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. I just actually did a very interesting podcast last week with uh, Moises uh, Velasquez Manoff. He's a really good science writer. He's written a lot about autoimmunity and the whole idea of the microbiome, um, why, um, you know, why people uh, develop autoimmune diseases. And, you know, he, we talked about the Epstein-Barr virus, which is interesting. You know, we know it causes mononucleosis and most people think, okay, you get mono, you get better. Although, unfortunately, over the years, there's been unclear association with something called chronic fatigue syndrome, which I tend to see a lot of, but a little bit more evidence now linking it to increasing the risk to multiple sclerosis. So I'm just curious, why is there not been attempts at this? Like, what, you know, why isn't there? And, and he points out, it's very interesting. If you get Epstein-Barr when you're very young, like two years old, like they have in some of these other like underdeveloped countries, their risk of multiple sclerosis is extremely low. Whereas we get it as teenagers later on, this somehow is a problem. So what's uh, your take on that? Yeah, so, so Epstein-Barr virus is in the herpes virus right. group family. So herpes simplex virus type one, herpes simplex virus type two, varicella virus, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, we're all herpes viruses. Herpes viruses are big. I mean, if you take something like SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's a relatively small virus. It has four proteins. Mm. Influenza has 11 proteins. I mean, rotavirus vaccine I worked on, you know, has... has uh, has 11 proteins. So it's, it's these, I'm sorry, influenza has eight rotavirus 11. So those mm -hmm. are small, I mean, they, they, you know, these viruses are you know, 80, 90 proteins. These are big oh, viruses. Okay. So bigger, the bigger virus is, the harder it is to make a good vaccine. Um, there are people who are working on an Epstein-Barr virus vaccine using a purified okay. protein approach. So I think, I think, I think we are getting there. I think that there, you will see an Epstein-Barr virus vaccine, certainly in my lifetime, I'm older mm. than you. So maybe 15 years, but we'll, we'll see. I think we'll see an Epstein-Barr virus vaccine, but you'll be reassured that people are working on it. Oh, that's cool. Okay. I want to ask you about another vaccine too, the shingles vaccine, which obviously is highly recommended. I mean, anyone who gets, whoever knows anyone who has shingles, it's awful. And the, you know, the, you know, and pretty much everybody has been exposed to chicken pox of my age, you know, I'm 61. And, uh, and in fact, now most of the children have been vaccinated, you know, to chicken pox. My question to you is because this, again, it's a herpes virus, as we know, but it's sort of internally in your body. It's not external. How does that work? How does it work that a vaccine, that a virus that you already have inside your body protects you from getting a full blown, you know, shingles condition. Right. So the the original chickenpox vaccine um, that was introduced in the United States in 1995 is a live, weakened form of the virus. So, so can that virus live latently in your nervous system and reactivate in much the same way that the wild type virus would, that the natural virus would? Yes, it can. Uh, I think that's what what made that that process of developing that vaccine so long in the making. I mean, this is a virus that still caused, you know, tens of thousands of people, about, about 10,000 to 15,000 children to be hospitalized every year. It still caused about 100 children to die every year. So, so you know, varicella or chickenpox certainly could be severe. Um, I, I, so, so right now, that's still the vaccine for children. Um, right. but, but because it's, a, it's an attenuated virus, it reactivates far less frequently. And when it reactivates, it reactivates far less severely. So, so that's true. Um, and, and that's good. The, the shingles vaccine, which now is a, the original shingles vaccine, so-called Zostavax, was, was essentially was the chickenpox vaccine. It was just 14 times the dose. That oh was, wow! That's what I got. That's what I got actually originally. Yeah, okay. that's what I got too. Um, the, the 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 next vaccine was just it's really just a purified protein vaccine. It's the glycoprotein E. It's a surface mm -hmm. protein of the virus, which is 
adjuvanted with two very powerful adjuvants. Um, yeah, people get a lot of people really get ill. It's yeah, you know, they're, they're it, that it second is dose. That that vaccine sort of crossed the line for me, and in, in that uh, or in, in that it was surprising, because never, at least in the history of vaccine development, had you ever seen a purified protein vaccine be better than a live attenuated viral vaccine. But this vaccine was better than the Zasavax vaccine, and, and that therefore replaced it. So now it's only shame. Did you get vaccinated with that one also as well? No, but or? I need to. <laughs> so well, me, me also. I'll, I'll hold my hand. The bike. I was like, I got vaccinated for this. Do I need another one on top? I mean, this is always the question. Yes. Although I, I had a real reaction to the Zasavax. I mean, I had like whole mm. limb swelling fever. So and then oh, wow. why? Because I had chickenpox as a child. Right. So, so I you get, get chickenpox. Now you're getting the chickenpox vaccine. So you you have immunity to that virus to some extent already. So you have a tremendous immune response. So I, I I have to believe that I have a very good immune response at this point to chickenpox. Um, but, we'll and, but but what happens with that? Because that, that's an interesting kind of unfortunate illness. Like we know that with you know quote shingles, um, which is that reactivation of varicella, it typically happens when people are immune suppressed for various reasons. It could sometimes it really could be from stress. Sometimes it's you know something maybe they've had chemotherapy for age. cancer. Age, age, age. right. So the vaccine does what? It, it raises again like neutralizing antibodies so that and, that and so, virus inside uh, of more importantly, the cellular immune response. Cellular so, response. T cells, T upper cells. I think that's that's um, probably more important because it's really uh, um, because it's living latently in your nervous system, living in cells in your nervous right, system. Right, right. It's, it's not external; it's internal. Yeah, trying to eliminate the virus early. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what about this the monkeypox issue? <laughs> um, on some people's minds, again, people are saying eh, that doesn't you know really maybe it's not as big a deal. Um, it seems to work, but prophylactically, any, any thoughts on that? Cause you know, I mean, smallpox is a pretty scary thing. And this, this is like a little bit of a relative, right? The monkeypox. Yeah, definitely. It's a pox. So, so, um, the good news, I guess, about pox viruses is that um, pox viruses infect many members of mammalian species, the mammalian species. And so, and there's a lot of cross reactivity. So the smallpox vaccine is essentially, it's, it's really a hybrid virus, but at its heart, it was a cow virus to some extent, a horse, a smallpox pox virus. And, and that was when you got inoculated with that as a vaccine, because species barriers are generally high. So in other words, if you get uh, cows, get cowpox, humans get human smallpox. But but if you inoculate a human with a cowpox, you can get immunity that still cross protects you against uh, human smallpox, but doesn't cause disease. So that's that. And same thing's true for monkeypox, which really is rodent pox. I mean, we call it monkeypox because it oh. was originally or identified in the in the mid 1950s in these monkey populations that were brought in as for, for research animals. And so hence monkeypox was really rodent pox. Um, so, so does that does the vaccine, which is again the smallpox vaccine? It's the smallpox vaccine that is protecting you against monkeypox, and and does it work? Yes, I mean it works. There's two vaccines that are available. There's one that's much safer than the other, which is, which is a, again a virus that doesn't uh, that uh, Genios vaccine that doesn't reproduce itself. Therefore, it's much much safer than the so-called ACAM 2000, which is essentially the just like our original smallpox vaccine. Yeah, that's a potent vaccine. I remember they were giving it to the military when they were worried about like in the Gulf Wars and some of these people getting really severe reactions. And there was a lot of contraindications, like if you had eczema or any type of allergy or immune issue, they were concerned about that. But but again, so what you're pointing out is like smallpox was again considered a really contagious disease, right? I mean, with, you know, whereas you're saying the monkeypox, since it's jumping from like a species type of thing, it's not as much respiratory 
You know, I mean, like, let's say it has to be much more close contact versus, right. it's, it's skin you know, to skin contact, skin to skin contact. Okay. I think that's an important thing because, you know, people are afraid enough as it is. Oh, one other thing we have to get to, and this is definitely in your wheelhouse. What about this RSV thing? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, now I remember now 30 years ago when I was doing my fellowship in allergy, you know, I used to see usually in the fall, you know, RSV, but it was in very young infants because it would also cause a lot of, you know, asthma and other issues. And now, again, I guess apparently because of the COVID lockdowns and everything else, too, we're seeing it in these older kids. What's your thoughts about that? And, and why don't we have an RSV vaccine? Also we will have big, an RSV vaccine. We, we will? Okay. There's nine different groups that are working on RSV vaccine. We will have an RSV vaccine that I think will be a maternal vaccine. I think we're going to have an mm-hmm. RSV vaccine for kids. And I think we're going to have an RSV vaccine for older adults who also can die of this virus. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, what happened in 2020 was something that certainly never happened in my lifetime, which is that we had a virus come into this country where everybody was susceptible to it. And we didn't have monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have antiviral agents. We didn't have vaccines from 2020. So you're stuck with only trying to prevent person to person contact. And we did. We, you know, we isolated, quarantined, tested, 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 closed down schools, closed down businesses, restricted travel and basically eliminated winter respiratory viruses. I've never seen anything like it. We eliminated flu. We eliminated. (laughs) We didn't see any. I mean, normally there's about anywhere from 75 to 150 deaths in children from influenza every year. There was one death in 2020 from, from in the United States from influenza. In wow. Amazing. Wow. But what that did was it created, if you will, an immunity gap, which is when viruses circulate, you're constantly sort of building up sort of immunity. Um, and when you take them out, um, then you, you don't have that. And so I, we are seeing more RSV, I can tell you, in our hospital now than I have ever seen in my life. And it's not just this sort of normal waxing and waning. Sometimes you have good years, sometimes you have bad years. No, this is different. And we, we are overwhelmed with that virus, uh, I think, because of just what you said, the immunity gap created in 2020. You know, it's funny. It's almost like a farmer's almanac because I was again reading your book, Vaccinated. I was rereading it the other night. It was like even Maurice Hillman, he like he noted like he saw these things come in like sometimes like 60 year cycles. And he I guess he was putting the numbers together and figuring out, he says, oh, my God, this thing this thing is coming, this influenza is coming, and we better get everybody vaccinated safely and quickly as possible. And uh, I, I just think the public's a little bit overwhelmed now between, you know, it's like out of a, uh, like a scary movie, you know, all of a sudden, all of the, you know, it, it became front and center, you know? I mean, some years it's the financial crisis or it's this and that, but I think the last couple of years, it's been the infectious disease uh, onslaught. So that's why we need people like but I you. Think you're, I think people are tired of it. I think there's booster fatigue. I think they, they have, as you said, sort of gone back to living and working and playing as normal. And, and, and which is to say that, that, I mean, you know, two years before SARS-CoV-2 came in the United States, there were 800,000 hospitalizations from influenza and 60,000 deaths. Mm-hmm. We live with that. And I think we're gonna, there's going to be a certain amount of hospitalizations and death that we will live with with this virus moving forward, because this virus is going to be with us for years, if not decades. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think this whole thing, too, believe it or not, you know, I, I study a lot of the financial stuff because I find it fascinating. I think it's really affected the economy in a certain way. When they keep on saying about inflation, you know, how they're going to get it under control and all this stuff, too. But, you know, at the bottom line, I, I get the sense from my patients and you know, in my own life, like, it's like people want to spend their money now because they, they know what the heck's going to come next. You know, and a lot of people are saying, like, I really don't want to go back to work. <laughs> you know, again, it's like sort of like live for the moment. Versus, you know, back in the day, everybody was like, well, I want to plan for my future and this and that. And, uh, you know, you can't control demand if, uh, you know, people want to spend. So anyway, this was, as usual, 
an illuminating, interesting, and fun discussion. I, I, anytime I could get you on, I love it. You've written two terrific books. I, again, my, my, I hope my listeners read You Bet Your Life. That's your most recent one. Um, and Vaccinated, which again, for anyone who really wants to know why vaccinations are so important, any of you that are anti-vax, if you don't read this, you're not doing your, your children, your family, a, you know, a service. Uh, thanks, Dr. Rapp, for coming on um, and uh, be well. It's my pleasure. Stay safe. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a great day. Uh, Bye-bye.